So we're going to be in Genesis 29, 31 through 30, 43. Um, and our passage contains polygamy, uh, mandrakes, not the Harry Potter screaming baby mandrakes, uh, but kind of the root, and a question, questionable goat herding technique. So what do we do with a passage like this? If you're going through your reading um, in Scripture, well, I think it helps to remember what Scripture is for. And one of the most concise places that describes what the Bible is for is 2 Timothy 3, 15 and 16. Paul, he's talking to his child in the faith, and he says, And you know, Timothy, that from your infancy you have known the sacred Scriptures, which, one, are able to give you wisdom for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus, and two, they are for training in righteousness. So as we come to tough passages in Scripture, we have to remember that this passage, because the whole Bible, is meant for two things, pointing us to Jesus to have faith in him and for Christians to grow in training and righteousness, to be like Jesus. So that's what we're going to do today. I'm just going to, we're going to read the passage as we go through it. But if you join me in chapter 29, verse 31, I'm going to read four verses and then pray for our time. 29.31. When the Lord saw that Leah was neglected, he opened her womb. But Rachel was unable to conceive. Leah conceived, gave birth to a son, and named him Reuben. For she said, the Lord has seen my affliction. Surely my husband will love me now. She conceived again, gave birth to a son, and said, the Lord heard that I am neglected and has given me this son also. She named him Simeon. She conceived again, gave birth to a son, and said, At last, my husband will become attached to me, because I have borne him three sons. Therefore, he was named Levi. And Leah conceived again, gave birth to a son, and said, This time, I will praise the Lord. Therefore, she named him Judah. Then Leah stopped having children. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, would you show us Jesus this morning? Help us to respond to his invitation to rest in him. And as we rest in him, please make us more like him today. Amen. Amen. Uh, my grandpa, Grandpa DeLorme, was an extremely successful man. He was an amateur bodybuilder, weightlifter. He was a renowned doctor in Boston. He was foundational in developing physical therapy and especially physical uh, uh, progressive resistance training. But Grandpa, Grandpa DeLorme, like many success stories, his story started with a deep feeling of inadequacy. Grandpa wasn't from Boston. He was from Bessemer, Alabama, and he grew up extremely poor. His father was a railway conductor. And when Grandpa was young, he got sick. I think it had something to do with his heart, but he was bedridden for a while and grew really weak. And he vowed to get strong. This feeling of poverty and weakness served as fuel for his lifelong pursuit of riches and respect. Grandpa DeLorme was sharply dressed. He was known uh, for being really calm with his patients in the room. He'd usually give them an hour or more. He was calm under pressure during operations, and yet under this surface of calmness, he was always churning. He was always striving to get richer, more renowned, to get stronger. 
The truth is we are not all Grandpa Delorms, but we are all ducks. That's right, I'm calling you ducks. On the surface, we are cool. But underneath the surface, we are paddling like mad, striving. Some of us are striving for approval, some of us for affection, some for success or strength. But this story of striving is ours. Ever since we've been kicked out of paradise, humans have been striving. This morning's passage gives us striving saints and sinners some help. And the heartbeat of the passage is this. This is the main point. Strivings cease when we learn that God is enough in every circumstance. Strivings cease when we learn that God is enough in every circumstance. We're going to walk through this passage looking at the three main characters. Older sister Leah, she's striving for love. Younger sister Rachel, she's striving for honor. And husband Jacob, he's striving for success. And then we're going to ask, when do their and our striving cease? Uh, before we get into Leah and see her striving for love, let me just catch us up to where we are in Genesis. Uh, Jacob, he's a deceitful, uh, snot-nosed kid. He steals his older brother's inheritance, and he runs away. He leaves the promised land. His father is Isaac. His father's Abraham, and so he's part of the promised family, but he's deceitful. His heart isn't right with God. He steals his brother's inheritance and runs away, and he comes to a place, and he finds this beautiful woman named Rachel, and he falls in love with her, and he talks to Rachel's father, Laban, who also is a deceiver, and he says, I will work. I will do anything to get Rachel's hand in marriage, and Laban says, work seven years for me, and then you'll get Rachel. So those seven years passed like a few days because of his great love for Rachel. And he enjoys a wonderful wedding and celebration only to realize that he wasn't married to Rachel, but to Leah. The deceiver was deceived by his father-in-law. And so Laban, the scoundrel, he says, well, if you work another seven years for me, Jacob, then you could have Rachel today. And so that was their agreement. And so the big picture of our story today is where 11 out of the 12 tribes of Israel come from. In about seven years, Jacob is going to have 12 kids, 11 boys and one daughter with four women. Yikes. All right, let's dig into it. First, let's look at Leah, the older sister, striving for love. Leah's life was painful. She had an abusive father. Her father, Laban, was cruel, he was crafty, and he used his daughter Leah to get more work out of Jacob. Her father was abusive, and she had a disappointed husband. Imagine the look on Jacob's face when he realized that he had just been married to Leah and not to Rachel. Disappointment, disgust. Leah's life was filled with pain. And so we see with these first four children in verses 31 through 35, she is striving to earn her husband's love. But she experiences this unrequited, unrequited love, this unreturned love. And the names of her sons reveal the posture of her heart. These first three sons are all related to her husband and gaining his affection. And sadly, this is a pattern that often happens. Maybe it's your story here. As a young woman, as a girl, your father was abusive or neglectful. 
Maybe you've turned to other men to seek satisfaction, seeking to gain their love. Maybe as a boy, you didn't have your father's love, and so you're seeking to prove yourself, seeking love from other fathers or mentors. And the sad reality of Leah's story here is that she never gets her husband's love. And that's a reality in this fallen world. We have desires for good things, even from love of people we should be receiving love from, that we may never experience in this life. But that doesn't mean her life is meaningless. And that doesn't mean your life is hopeless. Notice God's action in Leah's life. Verse 31 says, The Lord saw that Leah was neglected. He opened her womb. God saw Leah. God saw her disappointments and he moved towards her with fatherly compassion like Laban had never done before. Over and over again in Genesis, God is moving toward the outcast and the downtrodden. And when Jesus came to earth about 2,000 years ago, he carried out the Father's mission. Jesus always had his head up and out to the horizons of society, the outcasts, seeking them and saving them. And this compassion starts to change our hearts. As we see God's fatherly, loving heart for us, it changes our hearts. Leah learns this lesson, that God is enough. God is enough. Even with unrequited love, God is enough. And you see that in the naming of her fourth child. Remember, the first three names were all related to her husband saying, maybe this child will earn me love. And then the fourth child, she names him Judah. And she says, this time, I will praise the Lord. Then, it's as if she's learned her lesson, she ceased bearing children. That's what the scripture says. So God seems to be teaching her a lesson. God seems to be saying, now you get it. Now you get that I am enough. Now you get that I am worthy of praise, regardless of what I give you. And what God was offering her was a greater love. If this is your particular form of striving, maybe your whole life you've been striving for love, you need to hear this. You cannot control whether people will love you but you can control whether you'll respond to a loving God. Every single thing that Leah wanted from Jacob, God provided in greater measure. She wanted to be seen and recognized by Jacob. God saw and knew and recognized her. She worked hard. She strove to earn love from Jacob and God loved Leah freely by grace, not by works. Leah learned that God was enough. His love satisfied deeply. About a couple thousand years after this incident, when Jesus was walking in the Middle East, he was on a journey with his disciples and he got thirsty. He's fully God and fully man. Our Savior got thirsty. He sat by Jacob's well of all places. And it was hot during noonday and a woman came out to fill up her jar. She was on her sixth man. She had been through five marriages and the man she was with now wasn't her husband. And she came for water, but she found something greater, a greater satisfaction in Jesus. Her thirst for love was not quenched by these six men, but her thirst for love was quenched in Jesus who says, 
I am the water of life. Whoever drinks from me will never be thirsty again. His love is full. His love is costly. He sacrificed himself for us while we were his enemies. And he rose to offer us forgiveness of sins and eternal life and love with him. So receive his love today by trusting Jesus, the loving King and Savior. So Leah's section ends here. Um, her arms are full with kids. She doesn't have Jacob's love, but she has something greater in God's love. And it seems like her heart is finally full with praise. She's saying, God is enough, even with my disappointments. And Rachel is over here, the younger sister, the more beautiful of the two. And she starts to become envious. Let's look at Rachel's story, striving for honor, starting in verse 1. When Rachel saw that she was not bearing Jacob any children, she envied her sister. Give me sons or I will die, she said to Jacob. Jacob became, became angry with Rachel and said, Am I in the place of God? Has he withheld offspring from you? He has withheld offspring from you. Then she said, Here's my maid, Bilhah. Go sleep with her and she'll bear children for me so that through her I too can build a family. So Rachel gave her slave Bilhah to Jacob as a wife, and he slept with her. Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. Rachel said, God has vindicated me. Yes, he has heard me and given me a son. So she named him Dan. Rachel's slave Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Rachel said, in my wrestlings with God, I have wrestled with my sister, and I've won. She named him Naphtali. It's interesting, Rachel and Leah both want what the other sister have. So Leah has children, but she wants her husband's love. Or, or Leah does. And then Rachel has her husband's love, but she doesn't have children, and she's envious. And in this society, uh, for women, their honor, married women, their honor was tied up with children and having a lot of children. And so she felt the shame. Rachel felt the shame. And there's many parts in the world today that have this kind of cultural honor and shame principle. She felt the shame of being barren and having no children. And so she's filled with envy as she looks at her sister playing with all these babies. I want to stop here and just think on the, the community-destroying sin of envy. And I want to clarify something first. Both of these sisters wanted something that was good in and of itself. It's good to want children. It's good to want your spouse's affection. But our good desire becomes bad when we say we can't live without that thing. Our good desire has gone sour when we get mad or sad when other people have that thing we want. So we could pull up this envy slide here. One of my Professors at school, he spent some time thinking about envy. He defines envy like this, a feeling of unhappiness at the blessing of others. A feeling of unhappiness at the blessing of others. And at its heart, envy is idolatry. We say with Rachel, give me fill in the blank or I die. Life isn't worth living. And that's the heart of idolatry. We are meant to live and breathe on God and praise him alone. So I wonder maybe later today, if you could meditate on that question, how would you fill in that blank in this season of life? Give me that house, give me child, or give me that job. How would you fill that in? Take that to the Lord. 
The same professor, he says, when we envy, we flip Romans 12, 15 on its head. You probably know that verse if you're a Christian. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. But when we envy, we say, in the grip of envy, we weep at those who rejoice and rejoice over those who weep. Envy is a poison that fills our soul with darkened gratitude. It's a wedge that drives friends apart. It's a blinder that keeps you from seeing the good gifts God has given to you lavishly. I wonder if we think, what would it be like to be Rachel or Leah's children? There, you find yourself in the middle of a baby battle. You know, your mom doesn't really look at you. She looks at the sister who she's better than. When we envy people, we dishonor the people God has placed in our life. We dishonor the gifts God has placed in our life. And it crushes your own soul. So how can we fight against the sin of envy? We will either kill it or it will kill us individually or as a community. And here are a few spiritual weapons that we could use against the sin of envy. First, thank God for what you do have. Thank God for what you do have. Then pray for the good of those you envy. Prayer binds our hearts to those we pray for. And it is really hard to hate or rejoice at the destruction of someone you are praying for regularly. Finally, think of all Jesus has given you. Ephesians 3.8 puts it like this. Christians have been given unsearchable, bottomless riches in Jesus Christ now and forever. Think on those things. Those are a few weapons you could have in the tool belt to fight the envy in your life. Even with that, though, it's so easy to forget, forget uh, God's lavish gifts in our life and get back into the rat race of stri striving. If you look at verse 9, Leah kind of forgets her lesson that God is enough. Verse 9 says, When Leah saw that she had stopped having children, she took her slave Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. Leah's slave Zilpah bore Jacob a son. Then Leah said, what good fortune. And she named him Gad. When Leah's slave Zilpah bore Jacob a second son, Leah said, I'm happy that the women call me happy. So she named him Asher. So Leah falls back into this striving, this competition with her sister. And that just reminds us that growth as a Christian takes time. If you're discouraged that God is teaching you the same lesson over and over and over again, look at the saints in the Old Testament. It's been the same for thousands of years. God is patient with you. He will teach you the same lesson over and over again. And at this point, Rachel has two surrogate babies, but she wants one of her own. So this is where we land on the mandrakes. Things get a little weird here. Verse 14. Reuben, that's Leah's firstborn. Reuben went out during the wheat harvest and found some mandrakes in the field. When he brought them to his mother, Leah, Rachel asked, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But Leah replied to her, isn't it enough that you have taken my husband? Now you also want to take my son's mandrakes? Well then, Rachel said, he can sleep with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrakes. When Jacob came in from the field that evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, you must come with me for I've hired you with my son's mandrakes. So Jacob slept with her that night. God listened to Leah, and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. Leah said, God has rewarded me for giving my slave to my husband, and she named him Issachar. Then Leah conceived again, bore Jacob a sixth son. God has given me a good gift, Leah said. 
This time my husband will honor me because I have borne six sons for him. And she named him Zebulun. Later, Leah bore a daughter and named her Dinah. Verse 22. Then God remembered Rachel. He listened to her and opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son. And she said, God has taken away my disgrace. She named him Joseph and said, may the Lord add another son to me. So with this discontent of not having biological children, uh, Rachel tries to take matters into her own hands. And these mandrakes, the best I can tell, this is like a root, and people thought it was kind of an aphrodisiac. Uh, Kids, you could ask your parents what that is. Um, And so Rachel sees this mandrake and says, maybe if I take this mandrake, then I could have children. Note, she hasn't prayed yet. She hasn't turned to God for help. And this plan of Rachel's backfires. Leah ends up having three more kids, two boys and a girl. God is showing Rachel not to rely on her own wisdom, but on his fatherly provision. And so apart from mandrakes, sans mandrakes, God gives her a son and shows that ultimately children don't come from mandrakes, but from him. And I want to be very sensitive here for those who have suffered with or are currently suffering with infertility. This passage is not condemning the use of medical help. Mandrakes are more modern um, forms. This is not what this passage is about. This passage is about God growing the weak faith of Leah and Rachel and Jacob. So your infertility is not necessarily at all a sign of weakness of faith in your own life. And God sees you and he loves you. So Rachel has this boy and she learns to pray. She turns from relying on her own wisdom. She turns to God and says, would God add to me another child? And God answers her request. Sometime, sometimes, oftentimes, God gives us what we pray for. Sometimes he graciously withholds. But God takes away her disgrace in the community. No longer barren, no longer childless. And this points us to a future day when Abraham's son, through an unlikely birth, would take away our shame on the cross. The Lord Jesus meets us on the cross and takes our nakedness, takes our shame, takes our guilt, and he wipes it all away and restores us with a crown of honor. You may be thinking, Jacob's house is really messy. Jacob's Culture in his home is jacked up and very contentious. Where did all this striving come from, all this headbutting? First, uh, that's points against polygamy, not recommended. But also, Jacob here in this household, he started his life struggling, grinding. He's holding on to his brother's heel. He steals his brother's inheritance. He's butting heads with Laban. And he, as the leader of the home, is shaping the culture of this home. And this is a very toxic family dynamic. Jacob's life of striving and competing goes down to his wives and they start striving and competing. And we see that Jacob himself is striving for success. Let's look at verses 25 through 43. We're not gonna read all these verses because it gets into some goat breeding uh, and I'm not a biologist, but it seems like some hoodoo voodoo going on here. Um, But Jacob, I want us to step back from the passage a bit and see in this first section of the passage, Jacob is totally passive in the home. But at the workplace, 
He's extremely active and he's using all of his skill and his will to get riches. So first, Jacob is mostly passive in the home. Yes, he's had 12 kids in seven years. That's pretty active in another way. But spiritually, as a loving leader, he is passive. If you look at 30 verse 2, when Rachel comes to him and says, give me children or I die, he says something true. He says, God is in control. I can't give you children. But he has no compassion towards his wife. He forgot his own family story. His own mother was barren. And when she was suffering from barrenness, Isaac, Jacob's father, prayed for her. He was a spiritual pastor in the home. We learn from Jacob that he has the right doctrine, the right truth, but it doesn't shape his practice. And this is important for us to get. Your theology, your doctrine isn't complete until it passes through your lips in prayer and through your fingertips in practice. We see Jacob. He knows the right thing, but he's not praying for his beloved wife. Instead, he gets angry at her. So Jacob is passive in his home, but he's proactive in his workplace. Look at verse 25. After Rachel gave birth to Joseph, Jacob said to Laban, send me on my way so that I can return to my homeland. Give me my wives and my children that I have worked for and let me go. You know how hard I have worked for you. But Laban said to him, if I have found favor with you, stay. I have learned by divination that the Lord has blessed me because of you. Then Laban said, name your wages and I'll pay them. So Jacob said to him, you know how I have served you and how your herds have fared with me. For you have had very little before I came and now your wealth has increased. The Lord has blessed you because of me. And now... When will I also do something for my own family? In summary, what happens in this passage? They work out a deal, and Jacob says, let me have all the speckled and spotted goats in your herd, because most of this blessing is from God through me anyways. And Laban says, deal. And then he sends all the speckled and spotted goats away with his sons, three journey away. He's such a scoundrel. And note, instead of praying to the God who blesses him, Jacob works up a plan. It's like, he's like scratching sticks and all that. And I don't think it's his actual work that gives him the prosperity. It's God who blesses them, him. But here again, he's very active at work, but he's working like an atheist. He doesn't pray to God for help. In verse 43, the end of our passage ends like this. And the man, Jacob, became very rich. He had many flocks, females and male slaves and camels and donkeys. So in Jacob's pursuit of success, we have two warnings here. The first warning is, beware of the wrong definition of success. Success is a slippery word. Here's what success is according to Abraham's covenant. God's presence, God's people, and God's place. God's presence with God's people in God's place. But Jacob primarily defines his success as possessions and place. He really wants to go home and he really wants to take um, all these riches with him. But he doesn't really care about his family much. He doesn't really care about God's presence much yet. These blessings are meant to be held together. Presence, people, and place. 
He focused on gaining possession and getting home to the promised land. But what good are riches and land if you have broken relationships with God and your family? This passivity in the home and proactivity at the workplace is a common temptation for men. I'm still trying to think through why that is, but that is a common temptation for men. How many stories have you heard of fathers who are physically present but spiritually absent and women, mothers, aunts, grandmothers who have stepped up and been spiritual leaders and provided for the family? This is a common struggle. Jacob is passive in the home and active at work. Well, a few years ago, I heard a line that really challenged me on this. I forget where it's from. So if it's from you, you can let me know. I'll give you credit. But someone said, when a man is coming home from work before he passes the threshold, he should say to himself, I am leaving my second most important job for my first most important job. And that's helped me a lot in our mindset. Husbands and fathers, your primary, primary calling is to your wife first, then to your kids, then to everything else. So Jacob, he doesn't turn to God in the home or the workplace. And, and God will deal with his self-reliance in chapter 32. I think we're hitting that next week. So Jacob is lazy at home and he's striving at work like an atheist. Are these our only two options? Indifference or striving? Not at all. Jesus calls us to a different way of living entirely. Jesus calls us to cease the rat race for striving for love, honor, and success. So let's hear these words from Jesus and consider when our strivings will cease. When striving cease. Jesus says in Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 and 20. Nope, 28, 30 maybe. Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take up my yoke and learn from me, because I am lowly and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, just as Jacob set the tone for his household of striving, Jesus sets the tone for his household in rest. Jesus is the head of the church. He prays for us. He's active in the home as a spiritual leader, and he is inviting us, his church, daughters and sons, into rest. And his invitation holds out hope in this age of information where we're just overloaded, in this age of burnout through COVID at work and in ministry, Jesus invites us into life-giving, restful fellowship with him and the Father and the Spirit. In the Trinity, there is no striving. Love and honor are freely given between Father, Son, and Spirit. They are at peace with one another, not proving themselves perfect, perfectly at peace in love with one another. And Jesus, this is what he did on the cross for us. He opened the way into that rest, now and forever. Jesus broke down the hostility that stood between God and us because of our sins, us provoking him with turning from him. And he says, come into the rest with Father, Son, and Spirit. I want to step back a bit, because if you're familiar with the New Testament, um, 
If you look up in a Bible search word, the word strive, you're going to see several occurrences of the word strive in a positive tone. Strive to enter into the narrow gate. Strive to pray. All these different instances of actually grinding and working hard. Does that contradict what Jesus has said? Not at all. If we could pull up Matthew 11 again. Notice he uses rest twice and then he uses yoke twice. Those words aren't usually paired together. A yoke, if you're familiar, is a wooden beam with two slots in it to go over the shoulder of oxen so that they could pull a plow. Uh, maybe you've seen a yoke on oxen at one of the fairs this fall or summer in the ox pole. That's a pretty fun event to see. And so Jesus is calling us to a new way of rest, yes, but also to a new way of work. He's saying, my yoke, my burden, even as you work, is light. So what is this restful work he is talking about? How does this work out? Um, last, last summer, family and I went to a fair and we watched an ox pole. Uh, and this one guy who barely spoke, some guys were like whipping the ox. This guy who had a limp, he was crushing the competition. And he had this massive ox, absolutely massive. We were just stunned staring at him. Um, and it was hilarious to see this massive ox with a normal size ox and the yoke leaning like this. That big boy was putting the team on his back. And that smaller ox was feeling the lightness of just kind of drafting on the bigger ox. And that's what Jesus calls us to. We are the smaller servant. He's the uppercase servant. We're the lowercase worker. He's the uppercase W worker. And he is pulling us, even in our working, even as we go back to work tomorrow morning, <coughs> Jesus calls us into a work that is actually restful, where we trust in him to be the decisive worker. We trust in him to be the decisive evangelist, to save our friends and our loved ones. So what does this striving that ceases look like practically? We could pull up that slide. Here are, here are four things for your consideration. As always, kind of, I, sh I shoot out a few applications. Just choose one. But here are some ways to actually feel more rested in Jesus as you work and rest. First, schedule a Sabbath. And this might be the first place to start. If you don't have one day a week devoted to enjoy Jesus, enjoy the people in your life where he's placed you, schedule it regularly. There should be no, I should do this, I ought to do this, simply enjoying people, place, and presence. Second, learn to strive by grace. As we talked about this yoke that is light, maybe memorize that passage from Matthew or Psalm 127 that talks about God being the decisive builder and protector. And go intentionally to work thinking, I want to rest, have a restful posture even as I work. Third, speak to God. Bring your thanksgiving to God, especially if you're feeling envious in this season of life. Bring your thanksgiving to God and bring your disappointments to him. He wants to hear both. Finally, seek contentment. List out ways that Jesus is enough in your circumstance. I knew my grandpa, Grandpa DeLorme, towards the end of his career and his life. He was a wonderful storyteller, just a, a rowdy sense of humor. Um, I heard so many stories of his gentleness and skill as a doctor. But my parents and his wife saw 
the burdens as he lost his strength. He lost his prestige. He lost his influence. But grandpa, with that inner churning, that inner striving for strength, for wealth, he learned to rest in Jesus. I think he would say he returned to the Lord of his childhood in those last years. And he said with Leah, I will praise the Lord. God is enough. My parents chose a verse for my grandfather's um, gravestone. He will pull that up here. Might be a little small on the bottom. I think this is such a fitting verse for my grandpa with all of his striving. This is the last word on him. Psalm 73, verse 23. I am always with you. Grandpa learned that God is enough in life and even in death. Strivings, his strivings, our strivings cease when we learn that God is enough in every circumstance.